Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Mind, hosted by serial entrepreneur and author Mark Kramer. Tune into The Best Business Minds to listen to thought-provoking interviews with best-selling business book authors who are today's leading innovators, entrepreneurs, and industry experts from around the globe. Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Minds, where we interview business leaders and academics that write thought-provoking books. I'm Mark Kramer, a serial entrepreneur who consults with family businesses and entrepreneurs. This is our 144th show. Today's guest is Natalie Nehai, author of Business Unusual and Web of Influence and host of the Hive podcast. You have to give us a link to that so we can uh, put that out there for everybody uh, as well. So that's welcome. And uh, you're in Barcelona, Spain, which I wish I was at. <laughs> yeah, I'm in Barcelona. It's um, it's a pleasure to be joining you from here and to be in conversation with you. I'm looking forward to this. Well, um, first of all, why don't you tell the audience a little bit about your background? Sure. So um, professionally, I have quite an interdisciplinary background. So I trained in psychology. I did that at university. I then went to art school. I went to Central St. Martin's in London, did the foundation, started the degree because art was my my primary love um, and got quite bored because it was all conceptual art. And I wanted to learn more of the techniques for fine art, like painting and drawing. So I ended up leaving that. By that point, I was doing lots of music. I'm classically trained in violin from the age of three to around 17, 18. And I also play folk music and guitar. So I kind of ended up doing that in the States. I have family in lots of parts of the world. Um, And so I was pursuing my music in my 20s, got to about 25, and I thought, well, I need a website. Um, So I trained in design and development of websites, which uh, then enabled me to do my own. I fell into freelancing. And so that's kind of how I ended up in a slightly more tech space. And I got to the point where I was thinking, how can I combine the psychology background I have um, with the design and development of virtual spaces. This is like, how many years ago? It's like 15 years ago. So I started researching it. I thought, well, surely there's a book about this. You know, we know that physical environments shape behavior. Virtual environments must do the same. And I couldn't find anything that really satisfied my curiosity. UX wasn't yet a thing that came out in like 2011. It started to be used as a term. And so I naively thought I will write a book on the subject. Never written a book before. Um, sometimes naivety is really useful. Had I known how much work it would have entailed, I might not have embarked upon it. But so I basically wrote a book, Webs of Influence, um, which drew upon all of these different areas of inquiry. So cross-cultural psychology, social psychology, marketing, um, some neuroscientific studies about how we perceive and how we see, looking at um, different behaviors in response to the language that we use, the images that we employ, all of these sorts of things. And so I wrote the book, came out in 2012, so 10 years ago and a bit. Um, And that kind of launched me into the career I have now. And because of my extensive kind of performance with music, I ended up um, giving lots of talks and I found it fun. And I love teaching. Both my parents taught as teachers and that that kind of influenced the trajectory. Um, And since that time, I've become more interested in deeper psychological questions around how do we find meaning? How do we live in alignment with our values? What does it mean to self-actualize? And how does that connect you know, more fully to our deeper humanity and different aspects of life, not just business, but beyond? And so in an effort to kind of migrate in that direction and with all of the fallout of the pandemic, I wrote the new book, Business Unusual, which looks at values, uncertainty, and the psychology of brand resilience. And it places some of these deeper psychological questions and frameworks within the context of the world of work. Um, And my next steps are going to be more in alignment with, well, what does that mean at a deeper level? When there's so much change and turbulence, how do we discover the tools um, and engage in activities, processes, and communities that can help us understand how to live more full lives, um, especially as the challenges become increasingly difficult as I think we'll see in the coming years well I I love the book and (laughs) I loved your intellect and uh it's a shame you don't have much talent I mean you're only good at music and art (laughs) and psychology and a variety of different things your parents must be deeply disappointed so disappointed (laughs) yeah so how, how have you found meaning and how did the pandemic impact you um 
Well, I ate a lot of cake. <laughs> I had quite a lot of wine. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> yeah. And it was, you know, the first year I was like, no, no, it's fine. I'm going to keep doing Pilates. And I'm not a gym kind of bunny, but I was like, I'll do my Pilates and da 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 da. And I got to, I got to about six months in and I thought, well, actually, it was more like three months in and I thought, okay, now's the time I should write a new book. Um, I've been putting it off because I've been training. I'd come to Barcelona for a sabbatical for three months and did a term at this kind of realist school of art called Barcelona Academy of Art. I ended up staying. And so I completed this three and a half years of oil painting and drawing. And I knew that at the end of that time, I would have to kind of invest back into uh, my career and the psychology stuff, which is what gives me also joy and meaning, but also money um, and freedom. And so I thought, right, I'll, I'll write the book. And so I started on this book. And I, I, I don't know why I do this. It was, I don't actually enjoy writing these kinds of books. It was so much work. I did 22 interviews, read hundreds of papers. Um, and that was a way of focusing myself on some of the themes that were coming up throughout the pandemic to do something which I thought might be at least a little bit helpful or a bit constructive, um, both personally and in a, in a wider context. And so I kind of used the pandemic in that way. But then at the end of it, when we were coming out, I was so desperate to paint again, which is where I find a lot of joy and meaning um, that, that since then I've been trying to find transition back into that and a rescheduling of my life <laughs> so I can do all of the things that I enjoy. Does that answer the question? Is that too meandering of an answer? No, I thought it was interesting uh, because you found meaning in a lot of different places uh, yeah. for you. And you didn't let the pandemic uh, sink you psychologically because you mm. found ways to utilize it in a positive way. Mm. Very well recapped. <laughs> you can <laughs> tell you've done this before. <laughs> so how do you, and you talk about this in the book, you talk about a lot of different subjects, uh, which is what made the book interesting. But um, for first of all, why did you write this book? And then I want you to tell me a little bit more about, you know, how do you define resiliency and, and what did you learn about resiliency? Uh, because the pandemic required quite a bit for most people, resiliency. Mm. Mm. So I wrote the book for various reasons. One was because I find that it seems to be that every five years I write a book um, and it's a way for me to self-direct my learning, dive, dive deeply into the things that I think are interesting. And I have the tendency for good or for bad to want to synthesize lots of different areas of knowledge together, which doesn't make for a bestseller often, but it does make for an interesting reference manual. And I think one of the things I believe in is that if you assume the intelligence of yourself and of others, and that you have the capacity to understand complex ideas, um, you know, we step into that, we step up to that plate. And so with this book, it was a question of, all right, what are the things that are actually potentially going to help us? How can I create hopefully something which is accessible that will serve as a manual as something to provoke people into deeper thoughts about how to cope with turbulence, with uncertainty, with difficult questions. And I saw fairly swiftly, as I think many people did with the pandemic, that as with other challenges, whether it's social challenges, climate challenges, it's often businesses that step and business leaders in particular, people who care that step into the role to address issues faster than political institutions can, faster perhaps even that citizens can. And so it was a recognition of the power that businesses and business leaders hold in changing how we do things that I thought, all right, these are the people who can actually make difference at scale quickly. Um, so that was part of the, the thinking around that. And then just from a personal level, it was it was a way to sort of use my time in the pandemic and to focus myself and to learn more um, and to start di diving into some of these deeper questions uh, in a structured way. And the next question you asked me was about resilience, wasn't it? How do I de define yeah, resilience? Yeah, how do you define resilience? <laughs> so, I mean, you can tell from my accent that I was born in the UK. My family is very diasporic but I was raised in a British culture and the Brits often are accused or revered for having a stiff upper lip depending on where you stand on that scale um, but really I think that's not resiliency that that can often be stoicism in some guises or brittleness in others depending on the context and the person and so I think for me resilience is about being able to have the resources and develop the skills which includes relationships to cope with and withstand difficult experiences, 
traumas sometimes, um, ongoing uncertainty, turbulence, so that we can come out of those situations with greater strength, greater understanding, having learned something about ourselves, hopefully stronger relationships with those that we care about, and a sense of having deepened or grown into something more than we were before. In the best case scenarios, I think that's what resilience is. What did, what did you advise your friends during the pandemic who might not have been as resilient? And what did you say to them as they were feeling, you know, if they were by themselves, they felt trapped and alone. And even mm -hmm. if they were with somebody else, the idea that they couldn't interact with a lot of people, what were you telling friends who, because you have a psychology background, how do you get through this? A good question. I mean, I think because Barcelona is a very walkable city, um, so there's a f physical sense of proximity. The the quality of isolation was quite different, uh, and I mean by that, like when I was living in London, a lot of my friends would have been spread out throughout the city. It takes a long time to get anywhere, so there's a sense of physical estrangement that can come from being isolated in a larger place. At least that's how I feel about it. And so when I had friends, I had one or two friends that were living alone. Um, in Barcelona, there were hours in the day. I think at one point it was like from 10 till 12 or from 10 till one in the morning that you could go out and walk and exercise. And during those times, you could walk past your neighbor, your friend who lived down the road and wave to them and have a conversation. You could go on a hike. Um, one of my friends, actually, when I was in the writing, sort of the writing the book stage, but again, there were limited hours for contact literally just left a, a croissant outside my door and said, I've brought this for you to kind of pep you up. There's little gestures of, of tenderness and kindness. Um, some of the things that we did was to listen to episodes of podcasts and then jump on a Zoom call and discuss it. So there's still this sense of connection that, um, that, that saw us through. So yeah, those sorts of little things. <laughs> uh, do people become more or less resilient as they get older because like you now mm. have been through things in life and and maybe now you have different perspective so do people handle uh do people come more resilient because of experiences i think it depends on the person um one of the interesting things i'm thinking about resilience is also well there's several things one one interesting thing around resilience is how we can cultivate greater resilience by focusing on how we live out our values. And another aspect is, I mean, there are several aspects, but another aspect is about the psychological traits that we express ourselves through. So the personality traits. And speaking to the question of age and getting older, there is some research that suggests that over time, we become less neurotic, so more emotionally stable as a general trajectory through life as we get older. If you become more emotionally stable or less neurotic, one would expect that the level of resilience or ability to cope with difficulty um, strengthens. That being said, um, there's some interesting research around trauma and how unaddressed trauma can, can have knock-on effects into adulthood. And if you don't change or address some of the patterns that arise through coping mechanisms, from prehistoric, well, like previous or historic trauma, then we can end up getting ingrained in those patterns and reliving things that are difficult, like relationship styles, coping behaviors, et cetera, that can cause further damage as we go through our lives. So there's, it's a very mixed answer to a question, which is a simple question, but has a lot of depth to it. So I think the, the answer I would give, give is that the general trajectory is that yes, we become more emotionally stable and potentially more resilient with age, we then hopefully can cultivate the self-awareness and the tools to be able to deal with any areas where we're less um, capable or less skilled. There's a lot of research now from people like Gabor Mate, uh, Bessel van der Kolk, uh, people who work with psychedelics or EMD, EMDR or somatic work to help us unlock that potential and heal. And I think given that we have all of those tools um, and they become more available, then yes, it means that more of us as we get older can become more resilient. Yeah, I, I, I think so as well. That's uh, as you become older. I had a, a Navy SEAL on who wrote a book on leadership. And oh, he wow. said that how they could tell if somebody was going to make it, you know, all things being equal, that they were able to shoot a rifle, you know, do all the things that they need to do. He said, but really it was 80% mental. 
He said, you don't have to, you know, people think of seals as like Superman, but he said, it's really super mental. So he mm -hmm. said, if, if um, when they put people in the ocean and the guys who would joke about how cold it was and make jokes about it, he said, we knew those guys were going to get through seals. The guys who gritted their teeth and didn't do, oh, yeah. uh, make any kind of jokes and, and were super serious. He said, almost a hundred percent, they always failed out. He said, because when you're on a mission and things are under a lot of pressure, you uh, need to be able to make light of it or you're going to be too tightly wound. And then that's when mistakes happen. So mm. I thought that was pretty interesting mm. that, you know, people who are, he said, people who are resilient usually are ones who have a great sense of humor and can, and can make jokes out of bad situations. Yeah, there is something about being able to hold things lightly, I think, and, and a quality of spaciousness. I think especially also with ourselves, it's kind of, you know, I, I haven't met that many humans who are completely self-actualized all of the time. I don't know if it exists, <laughs> maybe someone like Thich Nhat Hanh or someone uh, such as that, but I think there is something about cultivating a quality of spaciousness so that when shit goes wrong or we fall into a trap or we fall off the wagon, that there's a quality of compassion that we bring to ourselves that we then can extend to others that, that allows for us to kind of pick ourselves back and, and rebound somehow. Um, when talking about building resiliency as an individual or an organization, Dr. Edith Goldberg, founder of International Resilience Project, writes, you have to engage the whole person. What she mean by that? Hmm. So I think it's about tapping into all of the different aspects of who we are. So it could be tapping into your, uh, your beliefs, tapping into your relationships, tapping into your capabilities, the things that, you, that you're good at, the things that maybe you hold dear. So it could be rather than just engaging someone and saying, right, you have to cope with this now and we have to do it just intellectually, which I think in many Northern sort of Western developed countries, there's this, this emphasis on the intellect and on coping strategies and on mental models. That's one aspect of our being. Um, you also have to be able to deal with things at the somatic level. So how are you taking care of your cortisol levels, of your stress levels? Are you being able to be in contact with people who can give you hugs? Are you going out into nature? Are you feeling a sense of connection with the wider web of life? Um, are you uh, nourishing yourself well? So it's really looking at the whole system of a human being and bringing all of that to bear into um our potential for resilience. So I think it's not just about being mentally strong. It's about that and all of these other things. Um, why living according to your values? Can you get through tough situations? What if you had a bad set of values like criminals? Does that change things? That is such a good question. I wish I had an answer to that. It really gave me pause for thought when you sent that one over. Um, I think when it comes to values, there is something around being internally coherent that when we experience our behaviors as being aligned with who we want to be, like our um, aspirational selves. So say, for instance, I want to be someone who um, looks after our planet. And if I go to the shop and all of the shops are shut except the corner shop and they sell everything in plastic bags, I'm going to feel a bit rubbish if I, if I buy something in a plastic bag because I feel like I'm going against my values. But for utilitarian practical reasons, I might buy something. So that kind of Tension that arises when we're not living in accordance with our values or beliefs uh, arises. There's a thing that arises called dissonance, so cognitive dissonance, but also emotional dissonance. And it's very stressful. We seek to come out of that state, whether by changing our behaviors or changing our beliefs. It can go both ways, which is what makes it quite tricky. And so I think when it comes to dealing with stressful situations, if we can find a way to identify what we care about, what values we care about, do you, do you care about um, creating an environment in which people feel safe enough to be fully uh, direct and honest about you know, their needs, for instance, that would be a good example. Then you can say, okay, I'm going to behave in alignment with that and cultivate a scenario in which people can do that. If you're able to cultivate scenarios, context, behaviors that are in alignment with your values, you'll feel much better about things. Um, and there was an interesting set of works by Viktor Frankl, who I'm sure many people have heard of, um, where he talks about the fact that people, when confronted with extreme terror, horror um, of the Holocaust, he talk, talks about because he survived this, the people who found a sense of deeper meaning through their values, through a system of 
belonging to something greater and deeper than themselves, they were able to go through the most extraordinarily horrific circumstances and transform their lives to come out and create meaning. So it was like a human triumph um, of overcoming insurmountable odds. So I think when you look at extreme examples like that, it can teach us a lot about how to live into difficulty by focusing on something which we care deeply about and how we want to live. I have to tell you, I met a Holocaust survivor named Ika Semantovich, and she survived two camps. Oof. She survived watching the um, uh, a German officer put a gun to her mom's head and shoot her mom in the head because they wouldn't give up someone. She survived the camp, got married, was married 47 years, had four sons, and then one son and a husband each died in separate car accidents. Like oh. she hadn't gone through it enough. And yet her attitude about everything was incredibly positive. She just would not let that drag her down. Wow. And every time I have a bad day, I think of it again, I'm thinking how bad the day could it possibly be yeah. compared to what uh, she went through. So we have a question mm -hmm. from the audience. Can one be resilient or become resilient without self-awareness? Oh, what a thoughtful question. Um, that's a really interesting one. So I have several thoughts in response to that. So self-awareness, it's a tricky one. So from a Western perspective, we place a lot of emphasis on individual identity, growth, awareness, transformation, and we're focused on the individual. And self-awareness indicates a sense of self, which is individual. So there's that thing that I want to bring into the mix. The second thing is, is that, and in that context, you'll say, okay, self-awareness is on the individual to cultivate themselves, to, to deepen their skill set and what have you. But I can also think of situations in which there are more collectivist ways of living, where the sense of self might be embedded in a construct of interbeing. So it's not just self, Natalie, it's self as a member of a community, as a member of a, of a wider ecosystem, etc. in which case our concept of self-awareness might be quite different. And so you could say, okay, someone who is embedded in a culture where they live in relationship with others as a community and the texture of their daily lives is, is one which is enmeshed in relationship with an ecosystem or what have you, how much individual self-awareness is needed in order to feel resilient? I think Systems where there is a greater sense of relationship and balance and harmony don't necessarily need as much self-awareness in the way we might conceive of it in psychological terms than systems where there are a lot more challenges because we are atomized and because we have fragmented relationships and we don't have a sense of support from others. So I think self-awareness may not necessarily be necessary for resilience because we get resilience from community as well as from other places. And yet for many of us living in very individualized societies, self-awareness and self-growth, I think is vital. Um, I don't think it's the only route. I hope I haven't muddied the waters. I think that's quite a <laughs> kind of multi-layered answer to what is a very beautiful question. Well, like you said, it's a very substantive question. Um, <laughs> yeah. It requires a lot of deep thought about that. You mentioned things people can do in stressful situations to get through tough situations and times. Tell us what some of those things are. Okay. So some of these are very, very practical. Often they're quite practical. Um, and often the most robust routes or effective routes out of a sense of heightened stress is to get out of our own heads because we ruminate and that causes a lot of issues. So one of the things that's been well documented is if we affiliate, if we spend time with others, that reduces stress. I read some interesting papers years ago about how um, consensual appropriate touch for women in particular, so things like stroking or hugging in a way that feels safe with people that you that you care for can be a really good way to kind of co-regulate. Um, also, we know that things like singing, especially when you're singing with others, humming with others, uh, walking in nature, nature connectedness is huge when it comes to down-regulating stress. And there are various ways to get that. So you can spend, even if it's just like an hour walking in a forest, if you have that available to you and not everyone does, um, and we know from the research that it's not just about being among the trees, it's also breathing in um, the various different compounds that they uh, express through their leaves and through their, their bark, etc. So nature connection is really important. There's been some really interesting psilocybin trials looking at um, being able to help reduce people's lived experience of 
treatment-resistant depression, anxiety, end-of-life uh, anxiety. Um, so there's lots of different ways to, to kind of reduce stress. Other things include learning to regulate our emotions better. And one of the things that can help with that is learning to identify, name, and communicate our needs to other people. So nonviolent communication is an amazing framework and process for helping us um, to do that. So th those are just some of the things that, that are on my radar for helping us to, to deal with things um, more resiliently. I eat chocolate cake. So yes, I'm chocolate cake. I'm with yeah. you. <laughs> uh, you write that forty percent of millennials will choose one company over another based on environmental impact. Uh, that is exercising one's personal values. If the economy takes a major hit and job opportunities become scarce, will people throw away those values? That's a very good question. Um, <clears throat> So there's always the question of, of balance and how do we meet our various needs in a system which is quite complex and predicated on making money to survive. So if you don't have access to land or to the ability to grow your own food or to build your own shelter, which is most folks in developed countries, which is where I'm situated, um, we need to make money or have access to those things in another way. So we live in an economy where we have to make money largely to survive. If you're in a situation where um, your survival depends on you taking a job that you don't enjoy, but you have mouths to feed, a mortgage to pay, or rent, or what have you, heating and food to, to, to be able to um, pay for, then of course, those needs are going to become much more important, at least in the short term, um, for most people. That being said, a lot of people know about Maslow's hierarchy of needs and categorize the needs or, or kind of um, think of them, conceive of them in a pyramid, which actually he never did. It was like a management um, effort or process that did it like this. And one of the things that he talks about is self-actualization. And we tend to think that we have to get our basic needs met first in order for these so-called higher needs, um, being needs of self-actualization to come into the frame. That's not true in all cases. In some contexts, some people, uh, for people who decide to go on hunger strike, for people who um, are pacifists and who tie themselves to a tree, like any number, like Gandhi, for instance, there are circumstances in which people will refuse to relinquish their values, even if it directly impacts their chances of survival. So. And these are extreme cases, but they also speak to our capacity as, as humankind, as human beings. So I think it's always going to be a bit of a mixed answer. I think where possible, people will choose to live in accordance with their values. If it's not possible, people will understandably want to take choices that means they can ensure their own and others' survivals. I also think there's another layer to this question, which is, as we're facing kind of ecological impoverishment and degradation, biodiversity loss, climate floods, fires, freezings, et cetera, um, economic instability, political instability, and I think we're going to see more of this as the years roll on. And then you've got the issues around AI, you know, corroding what jobs are available now and which are going to be um, taken over by automation, et cetera. There's going to have to be a systemic change where we say, okay, not everyone is going to be able to work in the way we're working now. So what do we do? <laughs> so I think in that, in that kind of different phase, let's say, of, of the systems that we're enmeshed in, what will this look like? Well, let's revisit that question in say five, 10 years when I think the landscape will be very, very different. Um, yeah. Um, Psychologicus uh, Louis uh, Gerard. I can, is that is it Gerard or Gerard? I think it's Louis Garrett. Louis Garrett, Garrett. Garrett. Yeah. I think. Said that, <laughs> Probably said that artificial intelligence is going to have a substantial impact on determining what skills and needs people will have to develop for the future. What's your thought on that and the impact AI will have on us as individuals? Kind of scary. It is kind of scary. I don't know if you've been seeing recently the the Wally, um, or there wasn't the Wally, it was the Dali and um, OpenAI's kind of art generator that can recreate extraordinary images and create something from scratch from from text input. So yeah. there's there's some really interesting stuff that OpenAI are doing. And most recently, I was reading up about ChatGPT, which is like a 
a chat wallet is nominally a chatbot, but it can compose essays and describe art in detail, create AI prompts, have philosophical conversations. Like it's taking things to another level. So I think there's an interesting question. And I kind of, I've dug my head in the sand a little bit when it comes to AI, just because it's it's changing so quickly and evolving so fast. It's quite daunting. Um, what happens to humanity, to what we value in what we can bring to our relationships, to our work, to our cultures, when AI is capable of, quote unquote, creating works, innovations, cultural artifacts that are indistinguishable from those of a living, breathing human. I don't know what the answer to that is, but I think one of the things that I'm seeing, and it's kind of almost like a counter movement to this, is kind of the, the kind of, when there's a shift towards AI and um, abstraction and virtual kind of the, the metaverse, if you like, there's also that, that deep longing that I'm seeing in a lot of places, especially we saw this after the pandemic, of people wanting to have meaningful connection, to come into contact with others, to find a sense of belonging. And I think that there is an untethering that can happen when we spend all of our time in digital spaces um, and an impoverishing potentially of what it means to, to live a human experience, because human experience has become so in many places, focused on um, text, on image, on production, consumption, on cities. We don't have as much time in many places to experience. I mean, I, I kind of seek this out, so maybe I'm a little bit more of an outlier here, but we don't spend as much time seeking out evenings where you can just sit around a campfire and sing songs. And yet, when you ask people often what are the most meaningful or memorable moments of their lives, few people are going to say to you, oh, yeah, it's when I was on my laptop doing X, Y, or Z. Like, that doesn't happen very often. Um, and so I think there's going to be a move towards finding meaning through experience and human connection that is not just digital, but also analog. And of course, the AI side of things can help augment our experience of what it is to be human, but I don't think it can replace it. So those are my very nascent thoughts on that question. <laughs> Uh, I think there are interesting questions that people are, are dealing with more and more because life is becoming more and more stressful and yeah. figuring it, figuring that out. Uh, a part of your book focuses on sustainability and the environment. How has that affected industry and in corporate employment recruitment? Mm. This seems to be, especially with millennials, seems to be they're realizing the effects on the planet yeah. and who they're going to work for, the smartest, the brightest ones. Yeah. you know, how they're going to choose it. Yeah, so I think, so it's interesting, This the, the last sort of year, we've seen quite a lot of big shifts in this. So um, I don't remember if you remember the Patagonia news that broke when they made Earth the the primary or only stakeholder. Basically, they changed their, their legal structure in order to prioritise Earth. And I think when you look at the rise in similar, but perhaps less, let's say sort of extreme, but I think it's a great idea. Um, so similar trajectories, you see the rise of B Corporation. I know that quite a lot of large companies now are seeking B Corporation certification um, as a means of providing for the consumer proof that you are not just in it for profit, but you're in it for people and planet, and also as a means for changing the heart and structure and DNA of a business through various different processes to make sure that you're not just having um, one priority orient all of your business endeavors. So I think people are looking for companies not only to just do good, but also to be good, to prove it, to, to live up to their integrity. Um, and especially for millennials, and I fall just within this camp, so I guess now it's like people between roughly the age of 25 and 44, there's also this sense of what am I here for if the extrinsic motivation of money, a promotion, a house are further out of reach than for the previous generation. A lot of people aren't going to be able to afford their houses. We see the change that's coming down the line in terms of um, work instability, economic, food security, like all of these things are coming. So the question really is, what's the point? Um, why spend my life if I'm in a privileged position, privileged position where I don't have to 
work in a factory on low wages. Like the, the, the question of privilege comes into this massively. But if we have a sense of possibility and opportunity, why would we choose to work for a company that we hate doing work that's meaningless? And so that's becoming more and more central to companies being able to attract and then retain um, individuals. And I think, especially with the pandemic, a lot more people that I know have decided to work a lot less. They're like, well, what, what is enough? What's sufficiency? How much money do I really need? What actually, what do I want to do with my life? Do I want to have five days working or maybe it's three enough and I spend the other four doing the things that I really love? Um, and so it's, it's also that inquiry as well. Like, how do I want to live? I think even companies are thinking because um, there are companies now thinking about going to a four-day work week where you mm. work six to six and you'll have a three-day weekend. And I knew a company in my hometown that was way ahead of this, started this 40 years ago. Oh, wow. And their turnover rate is basically zero Yeah, because the people like that structure. They feel like um, four days a week, they don't mind working 10 hours a day, those four days to do whatever has to be done. But also the 10 hours a day, because you basically you're still working almost a five day week, but just across four days. So and I think right. that's quite an American model. And I've noticed this since, you know, I've been I was I was living in London for a long time. I've been living in Barcelona for six years now and from america to the uk there's a change in terms of how much holiday we get and the priorities that we have and then from the uk to spain there's another massive change that like people have um that often a lot of the shops here don't open till 10 they shut for two hours in the afternoon and then they're open till eight when there's a holiday they're, they're called puentes like if you have a holiday on the thursday and it's like a public holiday people will take the friday off and they'll take the saturday and something like there's this ethos of Life is to be lived and work. Yeah, it's fine. But actually the priority is, is to enjoy life. Um, and so I think there's a lot of cultural difference there as well as to what a four-day work, work day looks like in Spain versus in the US versus um, Japan, for instance, or wherever else it might, it might be trialed. Um, yeah. <laughs> I, I just read this morning's Wall Street Journal that there's a company, I'm forgetting which company it is, that is... Um, penalizing people for calling people while they're on vacation oh, like you're going to be fined for yeah. uh calling them while they're on vacation because they really want them to have it and in the u.s they've a lot of the silicon valley companies started thing called unlimited vacation oh, yeah. because these people are such workaholics that you have to take away the laptop and force them yeah. into taking it but it's interesting because i think with the workaholism thing it's also a coping mechanism for well, it can be an escape, no? It's, it's there's there's not just the there's a cultural narrative in many places which is like the American dream. People can work for it. There's a meritocracy. If you work hard, um, you'll achieve this aspirational vision of what life can be. And also, there's the other side, which is, um, you know, I was was sort of subject to this in my twenties and thirties. The sense of, oh my God, I've got to work. I've got to contribute value. I have to be constantly earning my right for recognition for not even recognition it's something more than that it's like to be enough that you're good enough if you perform in a certain way and I think many cultures have this sense of if you are not producing you are not valuable and we've got that completely wrong <laughs> and I think what we what we see is that when you say to people and this is what we're seeing I think with these conversations around meaning and self-actualization within the workplace which is you are a whole individual and you are embedded in a society which has other needs. Um, if we recognize that and we speak to that and we give you the opportunity to develop your personal growth, whatever, then you're going to bring more of yourself to work. You'll be more intrinsically motivated. You'll, you'll perform better because you'll be more invested personally. Uh, and that has a knock-on effect sort of weirdly on the KPIs that you have for people to be more productive. To So it's, it's kind of, I think our starting point um, we've misunderstood what makes for a fulfilling and productive and high-performing life, if you want to take that from that perspective. What did you think of when Elon Musk told people, guess what, if you want to stay here, you're going to have to work 15 hours a day, seven days a week? <laughs> yeah, look, look where that's got him. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, there's always going to be outliers. I think, I don't know. I mean, every every person that you ask will have a different answer to this. And my answer is not, the answer that everyone will give and that's that's fine i'm sure there's a lot of people who who will disagree with with my approach but 
I am currently trying to unlearn this sense that I have to constantly be busy in order to thrive. Flourishing and thriving is really interesting as a question to me, like, what does that look like? Um, and for me, it has to include, and I find this difficult, I was raised Catholic, so there's also this kind of, this element that comes in, which is always, always better yourself, always be doing something. There's this, this sense of kind of guilt or desire to be other than one is. Um, and I think for me, the, the real thing is, how do we unlearn that and go, okay, what are the ways in which we can live rich and fulfilling lives and work in a way that's pleasing um, and that's connected? And yeah, it doesn't mean working your ass off in a job you hate for people you don't respect. <laughs> like Everyone loses, everyone loses. And I think what's also interesting, I was reading a column the other day, I forget which was it, in the New York or in the Guardian? probably the garden, um, about someone who's a therapist to hyper-wealthy individuals, so hyper-agents, um, billionaires. Um, and they were saying, he was saying that, that folks who get to that level of stratospheric wealth often are extremely isolated and in a state of near constant vigilance, because how can you tell that people are relating to you or wanting to spend yeah. time with you? Like, and that's that's an impoverished life, you know, like, a gilded cage is always going to be a gilded cage. And I don't think most of us have really, I think many of us don't understand that. And we kind of long for this and we just, yeah. Yeah. Here's a question from the audience. Is there any, <clears throat> excuse me, is there any relationship between resilience and mental health? For example, do more resilient people suffer less from mental health issues like depression or more or less? From what I would from what I've read, I would say probably less, but also, and this is what where it gets really interesting. Um, when you look at things like depression and anxiety and trauma and panic attacks, um, the, these, these expressions of imbalance maybe that, that we're not in right relationship with ourselves or that we're, that something's out of kilter. Most of us, I think it's, it's it's endemic to human experience. Most of us at some point in our lives um, and in many parts of our lives will go through difficult periods. And for some people that can show up as depression and for other people, it can be anxiety. For others, it can be workaholism. Like it shows up in, in different guises. But I think when we think of the question of resilience, if we're experiencing difficult periods of time where we're unable to cope or coping in ways that don't feel nourishing to us it's because there's something else that hasn't been understood healed addressed and so when we go through difficult periods depression for instance as you asked about that can be a knock at the door to say okay it's time for you to look into what's not working it's time for you to look into the traumas you experienced as a child the unmet needs that you have um, maybe an inability to ask for help, maybe an inability to express anger. There's there's so much that we have to contend with in being human and unpacking all of the difficult, complicated things about um, life that we that we have to deal with. So I think part of resilience is being compassionate to ourselves and to other people when we come across these difficult periods and then using them or recognizing them as an opportunity to to meet them, to encounter what it is that lays beneath that difficult experience, the depression, the anxiety, so that we can step more fully into ourselves um, and not run away from it. Because I think that's where the healing lies. It's in meeting what lies beneath or beyond the, the presenting symptom. That, that's just from my own reading around, um, yeah, working with these things. And I'm not a clinical psychologist. It's not sort of medical or clinical advice. It's just opinion from my own experience. So another question from the audience, what's your practical advice to build one's resilience muscle? Resilience muscle. Um, I've been exploring this a lot recently with, um, with folks in Barcelona. So for me, a lot of the answers to the questions of how do we cope with uncertainty uh, stem from being in community. And I've discovered that there's quite a large appetite from other people, certainly where I'm living in Barcelona, but I think the same is, is true for, for friends of mine in London and elsewhere, 
there's a big appetite for wanting to be in real, direct, authentic communication with other people, to feel like there's a space where you can find a bit more spaciousness and kind of like bring yourself warts and all to the conversation, Um, especially because we live in a time where social media creates conditions within which it's very hard to have debate and robust discussion and inquiry on difficult or emotionally um, heated areas. And I think we need to be able to have deep discussions in difficult places and joyful places in order to fully explore what it means to be resilient, to be human. So I think for me, community is the answer to that. So I've started doing, and this might sound a bit woo-woo, but um, one of the things I was missing being in a city is a sense of connection to nature through the seasons, because, you know, we've got a few trees in the city, but we don't have many parks. And so I was thinking, what's a way for me to pause um, rhythmically and check in with the seasons, check in with myself and with community? And so I picked the full moon because it happens every 28 days. It's a long enough time for things to shift and change. And so every full moon, I now hold like a... a music gathering with musicians and people who want to sing and stuff in my art studio around the corner from where I am. And that really cultivates community. People show up, they bring their wine um, or like kombucha, whatever they want to drink and eat. And we have an evening of maybe five or six hours, candlelit, singing songs. It can be everything from like, I don't know, the Beatles to songs that I've written or friends. And so I think community is a, is a, is a good starting point. And then the question is, do you feel that you are nourished by a sense of community. If it's lacking, it's probably lacking for the people around you too. How can you create a space and a rhythm in your diary across months to bring people into contact? Um, And I think it's not just about doing it online, which is also useful, but also doing it physically in person. So that's where I would start. I'm I'm surprised that so many young people, I've always worked from home, no matter what my venture is, I'm a uh, serial entrepreneur. And I've always worked a couple of days at home and uh, sometimes every day at home. But I'm surprised that um, after what people went through with the pandemic, that they're not rushing to get back in the office yeah. and interact with people. Why do you think that is, that they are <laughs> wanting to stay at home? I mean, yeah, I find them more efficient at home, uh, not all these meetings and everything, but so many people, one of the things they missed was being able to congregate with people. And that's part of the joy of actually working in an office is the interaction with other people. So it was interesting your insights about the the congregating with others um, and then also the the being effective at home. I think I think there's many reasons. I think part of it is to do with agency. It's to be able to do your work um, within the rhythm of your day. So you don't have to be in at five and then keep chugging through, sorry, in at nine or eight and keep chugging through till five. Uh, you can have more flexibility. And people, when you give them greater autonomy, tend to be happier. It's around self-determination. So having agency, having competence, a skill set to achieve your goals, and a sense of belonging and relatedness. And so I think for many folks, probably a combination is going to hit the sweet spot. So it's it's how do you give people the flexibility and the the autonomy to work from home at their own pace and rhythm, while also creating enough of an incentive for people to come into work um, to be able to want to, there's a, that sense of longing and yearning. And I think there was something very interesting in, in your use of the word congregation. Congregation is also used within the context of religious um, right. gathering. Yeah. And if, for me, it also speaks to our desire for ritual, for meaningful, intentional um, communion with others. I'm, I'm not interested particularly from a religious perspective, but more from the deeper thing, which is meeting with intention and purpose um, and a common sense of orientation or goal and I think that's where we we come into questions around mission and purpose of businesses do people actually feel like they want to go into a business because there's a greater sense of purpose and mission or are they actually not going in because that's what's lacking that mission and purpose etc so um yeah interesting the 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 way that you phrased it was very intriguing (laughs) Um, many young people have and continue to call out companies they work for if they think that they're doing what they're doing is unethical or bad for the environment. Do you think that they have had a real impact because leadership cares or up until recently recruiting smart workers was difficult and that being a better company was part of the table stakes needed to get uh, great people? And do you think that layoffs 
that companies are now doing now because you're seeing all the major tech companies doing major layoffs will cost uh, will cost cut ethics and environmental issues. Yes, I think um, when you have a system which is predicated on infinite growth and increasing profit margins, the fallout is always going to be huge and it's going to be incrementally larger or exponentially larger as you keep going. And this is where kind of my 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 interest in systemic change, which I explore a lot more with the Hive podcast, which I run, um, this kind of intersects with questions around post-growth ideas, degrowth ideas, which is a, a term that, that sits really uncomfortably for many folks. But the question is like, if we're creating systems, economic systems that are predicated on infinite growth, but we have to respect planetary boundaries, there's only so much lithium in the world, there's only so many trees, there's only so much water, et cetera. Um, the system that we currently run just doesn't work. <clears throat> it's just not possible. <laughs> like we have a finite planet with finite resources. Do the maths. And also do the math of the fact that, you know, if you're going to be uh, having to hire more people because the human population is still exploding and you've got fewer resources and economies are failing because of inflation, it's just, it's a bit of a storm. So of course, companies are, are going to cost cut, not all of them, but most of them. Um, which is going to cause further instability and potentially what's known in some circles as like phase transitions. We're going to have to come through into a very different way of doing things, which some folks are starting to think about, write about, read about now. Um, but yeah, I think we're in for a quite a bumpy ride <laughs> in the coming I, years. I, I also think people are frustrated when I was in my 20s and the 80s, a CEO made 60 times the average person. Now you have CEOs making 3,000 times the average person. Right. Or companies are sitting on $100 billion in cash, but yeah. yet they're letting people go, which is giving people uncertainty in their life. As opposed to when I've run different companies, when we ran into trouble, I basically said, we can all take a 10% cut and everybody keeps their job, or I can fire three people. Yeah. And yeah. I think that, you're you're seeing people, I think the amount of greed has exceeded anything anybody could have imagined. Hence right. we're in the yeah, these problems that we're having. Mm -hmm. uh, many companies are struggling with getting younger people to come into the office. Um, one of my clients is a national real estate firm that's having a hard time getting tenants. They're pushing the theme of whether employees want a job or a mm -hmm. career, which the implication is that you don't have a career if the senior people don't see and interact with you in person. Do you think mm -hmm. that will there will be a hybrid solution or will employees who are getting the leverage back because of the layoffs, uh, employers getting the leverage back, will insist on employees returning to the office? I think we're seeing a mix of both. I mean, I have seen some companies that have said, right, well, if you're unwilling to come into the office, you don't have a job. Um, then there's the, the, the opposite of that, which is companies that can afford, well, companies can now hire folks who live in other parts of the world where they accept lower wages because of the, the differences in economies and et cetera. There's this kind of, it, it's, a, it's a totally mixed bag. Um, I think from the, from the question of jobs versus careers, it's interesting because we're talking more about the millennial cohort, which are 25 to 44. And I think we still have within our cultural mindsets in developed countries, this sense that you have to do the nine for five, but we've seen technology be born and change the face of work and the hybrid um, possibilities that we now have. And there's this kind of longing for something else. But then underneath that generation, there's a whole new generation that are going to expect a lot, um, a lot of difference, a lot of different ways of working than the people who are mostly employed now. So I think there's also going to be that question of well, what is it that we need to what, what needs are we going to have to meet in younger folks coming up who are in their early 20s now when they perhaps, and I've heard this anecdotally from friends that run businesses, they perhaps don't want to be told what to do. Um, they don't want to necessarily apprentice. Some folks uh, have reported this, this battle with entitlement. Like, you know, in, in millennials, there's a sense of if you graft hard for it, you can get it. Um, so, I mean, there's a lot, there's a lot, of change coming that I think younger folks are going to demand from their employers. Uh, quite how that's going to affect that dynamic, I don't know, because there's not enough of them yet in the marketplace to, 
to know how it's going to shift. What are your thoughts? I see a lot of younger people feeling a high degree of stress because even if they're making really great money, they can't afford to buy a house. Yeah. They can't uh, afford to get ahead of it. And their parents and grandparents had better lives, even though they're making more money, not just, you know, uh, adjusted for inflation, but they are actually more educated, more everything. Yeah. And yet it's still an enormous struggle with high degree of stress. We have yeah. a question from the audience. What do you think of the Generation Z in the westernized world and their ability to be resilient? So this is an interesting one. One of the things that's really, um, two, two of the themes that I think are really present in research around Gen Z. One is eco-anxiety. Will we have a future? And two is the impact of social media on self, on connection, on esteem, mental health, attention span, focus, uh, you know, dopaminergic rewards, all of the rest of it. So there's I think Gen Z have it extremely hard, actually. They're up against a lot. And for that reason, I think that's one of the reasons why we're seeing so many younger activists um, being so much more uh, vocal about what their needs are because everything's intertwined. There's there's a sense of, is this all that there is? And how how dare the, the older generations have robbed us from a future or created technology which is siphoning our lives? At the, at the same time, there's a lot of people who are like, well, hang on, but this, this technology is amazing. It allows us to connect, to organize, to communicate. It's almost like a, the metaphor doesn't quite stretch this far, but it's almost like creating a consciousness for the planet <laughs> in a sense, in that it reflects a lot of human uh, ideas, thoughts, and creativity. So I think it's it's a mixed bag. I think they have it really hard. And I think that given that younger folks today, as you mentioned, don't have the same rosy view of the future and potential for stability, growth, um, and longevity that previous generations have had, their priorities are going to be different. So are their levels of stress and anxiety. Yeah, I think even on a global basis, leadership among countries, leaders are not thinking about the people first. It's all about yeah the power and who's going to win as opposed to putting the people first that we're seeing bad leadership around the globe. Um, because of the pandemic, you're right, that 50% of consumers started buying online, that consumer loyalty to specific stores and brands has taken a significant hit. Will we see more empty retail spaces or will that snap back because people are going about their routines as they were before the pandemic? I think it depends a lot on the nature of where the shops are. So for instance, in the UK, a lot of high streets, big stores that have been around for a long time shut. And with inflation and the recession coming, I don't think these stores are going to get replaced very quickly. Um, and so there's that question. I think the desire for people to, I mean, here in Barcelona, a lot of shops shut, but then a lot of new ones opened up. But I think that's also because there are policies in place that do not allow massive um i mean in certain areas massive shops to kind of take away the mom and pop stores kind of thing so there's it depends on policy it depends on um funding that's available for people to kind of keep their doors open so there's a lot of i think there's a lot of considerations in that question i think in terms of appetites i've seen that a lot more people are comfortable buying online but then there's also this movement towards craft there's also this movement towards um, for instance, buying jewelry that you can see in the local shop. This is, I'm talking locally now. Uh, and also things like food being more important. So local resiliency from locally sourced food means that people are more interested in farmers markets um, in kind of like kilometer zero regenerative farming methods where you're buying stuff which is good for the land. And it's also as close as possible to where you live. So I think it's a mixed, I think it's a mixed bag. We definitely see in grocery stores in the United States where the grocery stores are promoting that this is locally sourced and huh. farmers markets are crazy busy. These Great. I'm so happy to hear that. <laughs> yeah, just minting money. Um, how do you think the world, um, both economically and socially, will be affected by the fact that Twitter is allowing people to write, tell false narratives and Facebook is following a similar path? Should there be screeners for accuracy? 
Yes, is the short answer. I think, so there's a really interesting alternative platform that we can look at as a really good case study for what can happen when you design for different outcomes. So in um, Taiwan, there is a system called Polis, which is a way of gathering people's ideas democratically that seeks to find consensus on main points of contention. So that is a really good example of a social, well, it's not really quite a social platform, but it includes a social element of a platform which encourages engagement that seeks consensus so most people can find middle ground towards living more thriving, happy lives. And for me, like as a human, I want as many people as possible to be able to live in safety, to be able to pursue what makes them feel fulfilled um, and connected and well. Like that's the vision I have for the future I want to live in. And so I think when you look at social platforms that disincentivize that and that actively incentivize limbic hijacking and um, outrage and you know anything that that provokes immediate um, outrage of, of a very varying different kinds, of course it's going to cause problems. I mean, it's just obvious. Like, I just I think we have a very very infantile way of um, thinking about what progress looks like. Like. If you had to design this from scratch and you said to people in a room, say you get a bunch of 10-year-olds or five-year-olds, you say, okay, you get to live for the next year in um, coming to school, in a school where every day you are prodded and poked and people yell at you and you're made to feel afraid. Do you want that? No, we don't want that. Okay, how about a school that encourages you to come in and when there's a difficulty or a debate, you get supported to work through your differences so that you feel safe and you can have difficult conversations. Yeah, we want that. Like, ask any young person. And of course, that's what they want. But we haven't designed or systems have been allowed to be designed in such a way that they have effed everything up for the rest of us. Um, and then people say, well, the onus is on the user to change it. But it, how can it be on the user when the systems are designed to be so persuasive, this is where sort of Tristan Harris's work with humane sensitive technology and others comes in, so persuasive that they are really difficult to unhook yourself from. Like, and it's the same thing with um, fossil fuel issues. If you place all of the onus on the individual, we will never get the change that we need. And this is why pressure from individuals exerted at a level where policy change is enacted, that's where we're gonna see um, the main shift or in creating alternatives like Mastodon that model different ways of, of relating where people eventually move over. But that requires a network effect and an incentive to migrate across, which then, you know, that's another kettle of fish because then the utilitarian um, sort of loading of platforms like Facebook, which everyone has, and Instagram and TikTok, which everyone has, it's going to be hard to unhook masses of people to move over just because everyone's so used to using it. So it's... Yeah, it's complicated, like everything, like all of these great questions that you're asking, they have complicated answers. Well, you know, we've run over, but there oh, is sorry. one more question from the audience. And so I figure if you, do you have a minute to answer yeah. this question? I feel like I've been um, rambling, what, I'm sorry. <laughs> this is the last question. Uh, what are some of the elements in shifting and controlling the world's perceptions of oneself or a corporation? Shifting or controlling the perception of oneself or corporation. I'm not sure I understand the question. Uh, so what are, what are some of the elements shifting and controlling the world's perceptions of oneself? So all the things that are impacting us that people look at us and they make assumptions about us yeah. from all these different platforms that we're on and so forth. What's going to happen with that? So are we thinking about kind of looking at my behavior on Instagram, for instance, and then saying, hey, we're going to serve her more of this stuff and we're going to predict her behavior based on this and that and the other. Is that kind of the ballpark? Uh, yeah, and it? control it. And how do you control that perception as well? Because, you know, people yeah. read stuff, see stuff, whatever. Now they've got their own um, perception of you, which might not even be accurate. Yeah. Such an interesting question. Okay, so there's, there's several things to say here. The first is that if we know that the algorithms will feed us more of what we say we want. Um, we have to be more intentional, again, having spoken about uh, the onus being on the individual, but we still do have some agency. So for instance, on Instagram, I literally use Instagram for two things or three things. 
One is stuff around systems change and ecology. The second is funny animals because I love, love animal videos. And the third is around art. I have trained the algorithm to give me only those three things and that's only the stuff that I respond to. So there is something around that that we can be the curators of what we perceive. The shadow side to that is that if we're not intentional or even when we are intentional, we can end up in echo chambers, which has been well-documented, of stuff that just reinforces existing beliefs, ideas, perceptions, etc. So what I think we need, ideally, for a flourishing, healthy human society is to have um, a public commons, a public sphere in which there is a different set of priorities where you can have um, discussion, you can bring more of yourself to the table, you can debate in a more robust way where you can ask difficult questions, um, whether that's difficult questions around, especially, especially difficult questions around things like gender, things like race, things like equity, about economic <clears throat> disparity, about um, any sort of disability that people might encounter or privilege, like all of the really difficult themes that we have to find a way through to understanding and coming up with a solution to your better solutions, healthier solutions. Like we need domains within which we can have the difficult conversations. Um, and I think those exist much more readily in person with others than online, but we can also cultivate them online. So that's, that's what I think we need to do. We need to kind of think about how we engage in the platforms how they're serving or reinforcing specific aspects of our behavior and identity and perception. And then what do we want and how do we create these public spheres where we can actually bring more of ourselves to the table and learn more from people that we, we don't share the same experiences with. Natalie, I can't believe that we didn't lose a single person during the entire hour. So oh, well. <laughs> clearly you kept us very engaged. And thank you so much for spending the time with us and staying up later as you were in Barcelona. So we really appreciate that. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you so much for your attention and your brilliant questions. I hope it's been um, inspiring, interesting. Hopefully, check out the Hive podcast because we go into a lot more depth with these. No, these we got to have you more. back when you do your next book or if you update the <laughs> first book you did, we have to have you talk about that. Well, everyone, have a wonderful weekend. We'll see you all next Friday. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another episode of The Best Business Minds. Tune in every Friday at 12 p.m. Eastern Time for our live recordings. Go to www.thebestbusinessminds.com for more information and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter to be kept up to date with our upcoming guests and other bonus material. See you next time.